Mental health check-in with Lee. Come on and check-in with me. Mental health check-in with Lee. Come on and check-in with me. Mental health check-in with Lee. Come on and check-in with me. Come on and check-in with me. Mental health check-in with Lee. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Mental Health Check-In with Talik. Today, I have a special guest, Ariana Vargas. How are you doing? I am good. I'm excited to be here and um, share more. And you're bringing good energy with the smile, so I'm ready. <laughs> yes, thank you. So uh, let's get into this um, mental health chat. I want to ask this first question. I ask my guest. Every time they come on here, no matter who it is, they always got to answer this question before you get to other questions. So I want to ask you, how is your mental health? I would say it's trending in an upward direction, um, but on a scale of one to 10, maybe a, a five. Um, I just, I came straight from therapy to this podcast conversation. So I'm, I'm in a good spot with that. Um, I, but I, it's winter in Chicago. Um, my son has been sick and then I get sick and then one of us as well and the other is sick. And so it's a lot of just feeling sick a lot and not getting to do yes. some of the things like working out that really help my mental health. So it's a five, but trending upward for sure. Thank you for your honesty. Um, I like to ask that question. I feel like a tape recorder when I say this. I love to ask that question because I feel like I could be like, Ariana, you know, how are you doing? You could be like, I'm okay. But when you ask somebody, how's your mental health? It's a different type of question than how are you? It opens the door to say, you know what? Like you said, I'm I'm a five right now, you know, at a five, you know. But thank you for internet. So thank you so much. Um, my next question for you, growing up, was it okay not to be okay for you? I think in theory, not in practice. Um there was just a lot going on all the time and there were stressors outside of, you know, on life for my mom, I was in a single parent household. Um, and I think that there wasn't always room for kid stressors. And I've, I've talked about this before, but um, it just matters so much that we give young people a vocabulary to express how they're feeling. And I think the world has changed a lot since I was a young person, um, but there's more work to be done. But I remember being a young person and saying I was afraid when it was time to go to bed. And I think my mom thought it was a ploy not to go to bed. And I remember one time her saying, well, what are you afraid of? And I said, I don't know. And I really didn't know. And the fact that she didn't know how to help that me not be afraid of this thing that I didn't know what it was. And I know she was tired and working a lot. And so I think it was one of those things, well, it was like, well, figure it out. Um, and what I know now is that it was sort of the beginning stages of me experiencing anxiety, but I didn't have that word. And so I didn't know what the feeling was. Um, and so I think, you know, I was definitely struggling with not being okay in certain ways. I didn't have the vocabulary to express what it was that I was feeling. I didn't know. Um, and then we had, you know, some, some challenges in, in my younger life that meant that there wasn't a lot of room for, um, you know, my challenges too. Yeah. Um, viewers, just to let you guys know, you know, everybody grows up differently. I always want to remind them everybody growing up, you know, raising up was different and, you know, thank you again. That's like my second best <laughs> question to ask, you know, follow up from the how's your mental health. Um, my next question for you is, um, you know, there's a stigma, right, surrounding mental health. And 
what do you say to that stigma that surrounds mental health? You know, um, I feel like it's getting better now, but like it's still a stigma. So what do you say to stigma? You know, that we can't be, we can't cry, we can't be weak. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't understand mental health. I always tell my friends while I'm facilitating NAMI groups, I always remember not everyone will stay, understand mental health. Yes, um, there's so much to unpack there. So I'm gonna start with the crying and then go into stigma. But um, I often tell people, I did it on a call this morning um, with a, a graduate business school who's um, likely going to hire me to come speak and share some of our stories and then do a mental health pop-up for their MBA students. Um, I cried when I was on the call because when I talk about the story of founding my mental health company, um, about my best friend who passed away and every time I bring it up it's hard I, I feel the same feelings and so I cry and when I get the chance to speak at colleges which I've been fortunate enough to do it like a number of times now um, I always look at the young people and say there is room for tears in business um, and don't let anyone think that there isn't room for tears and for emotion um, my strength as a storyteller is because I'm so emotional but for a long time in my life I just didn't cry um, there were probably a lot of reasons for why but I sort of wore it like this badge of honor that I wasn't going to show the pain I was in by, by crying I was be tough. No one told me I had to do that. It wasn't societal. It wasn't religious. It wasn't cultural. It was just sort of what I decided to do. And it was super unhealthy. And I don't recommend it to anyone because then you turn into a person in your thirties and all you do is cry. Cause you're like, Oh, I got to make up for last time. Um, but crying feels really good. And it feels good to get that release when you need it. So I would just say that like, if you need to cry, do it. Um, and be that person who is willing to cry in a, a pitch. Like I've raised a, a lot of money for stigma and every single pitch I've ever done. I've talked about Lauren, which means every single pitch I've ever done, I've cried. And it didn't keep me from, you know, getting this off the ground. So that's number one. Um, to the, the question of stigma and is it getting better? Yes. But I think my biggest issue with, um, with sort of advocacy and mental health is that people say, just talk about it. We need to talk about our mental health. And there are these rallying cries of do it. But I started using this example, and I'll maybe come up with a better analogy, but this is what I do for now, which is if for some reason the U.S. Surgeon General decided that what everyone in this world needs to do for better health is play the violin, we wouldn't just hand people violins and be like, play the violin, violin at your um, meeting at work. Play the violin in the cafeteria at school. Play the violin when you're giving a presentation. Like all of these moments that people want others to just talk about their mental health, like that is the hardest thing to do. To be vulnerable publicly is one of the hardest things to do. And we have campaigns and sort of voices saying, go do that really hard thing. Go play the violin. This thing you've never done before that's complex. And what we do when we need to try something new that's really hard typically is we look at models. So we either go online, so maybe it's Google or TikTok or YouTube, but we find people who are doing it well or who teach it and say, okay, I'm going to learn from that thing. But with mental health, for some reason, we want people to just be ready, play the violin in a concert like overnight, because that is what will make you healthier. So like, yes, removing the stigma requires being more open about our mental health but it doesn't mean people are equipped with the tools or the skill sets or the knowledge to know how to do it. And so for me, I think that's like, as it relates to stigma, yes, be more open, but like why I created my company, which is also called Stigma, um, why I created it was so that we could give people models and we could give them safe places to practice. I do think that um, if you are a person who's been to some therapy, if you've you know 
practiced a little that violin, you can be sort of this bastion for others where if you talk about it, then they feel safe coming to you and that's a perfect way to do it. But I think we just have to be careful sort of pushing people to be open about your mental health and talk about it if they haven't had the privilege to be able to go to therapy or you know access to people who are already doing it. Yes, yes, yes. I love that. I love that. And let's do it. Set me up to my next question. Can you talk about the app stigma? I want to before you talk about, it, I want to say, guys, um, I download the app stigma. It's so dope. You know, people from across the world, everywhere, that can get you support. You know, I mean, hope. That's what they hope is support if you need it and everything. So let's talk about the app stigma. Yes. So um, I will just give a brief backstory and then get into what the app does. Um, the app is free. So that's where I'm going to start. If you are listening and you're wondering what this is, go check it out. It's on Android and iOS. You can get it anywhere. It's free. We plan to keep it that way. Um, but I was born in Costa Rica to a father with schizophrenia. And so this idea of stigma and people's misjudgment and misunderstanding and negative feelings about something they don't understand um, as it relates to mental health is something that I personally experienced. And so I knew what it felt like to have people judge or make assumptions about the term schizophrenia. But what I learned later in life is that you can't blame human beings for being human beings. And as human beings, we base our opinions on the life experiences we have and the stories we consume. And so when I was a young person, there weren't a lot of stories about people with schizophrenia. And the ones you saw were on, I would say this, so I sound like a broken record, but on Law and Order or the Evening News. And so if all you ever heard about schizophrenia was what you saw on those programs, you would think that every person with schizophrenia is a murderer or is violent. And that is not true by a long shot. And so what I knew was that I wanted to create stories about mental health, about people navigating different conditions and different misunderstood experiences so that there would just be a, a bigger library of stories for people to access. So stigma started with me wanting to create those stories. I shot a story about a guy who lives with complex PTSD as a result of child abuse. And we showed and had him talk about what does it look like when he feels triggered? It might be leaving someone at the school dance because he was so overwhelmed by the, the dads joking around and cleaning shotguns when he got there, but he had been exposed to gun violence. So for him, it was triggering. So I was trying to break that stuff down, but in the story, he shared that he is a child sexual abuse survivor. And the number of people who reached out to me and to him after we released that short film was what made me create the app. And it was because there were men who were 50s, 60s, 40s, 30s, doesn't matter, on LinkedIn, reaching out to him saying the same thing happened to me, but I've never told anyone until now. And I remember when that happened, I thought, I can't just be a filmmaker. I can't just create these stories because when you inspire someone with stories, you need to give them a place to go take action. So it's like they say that compassion is empathy plus the desire to take action. Yeah. And so if I'm telling stories to build compassion, where was I giving people a place to go to take that desire to act, that desire to help. Um, and so I built uh, a, a web app first. It was in like December of 2021 um, and just wanted to feel like, will people use this? And they did. And it wasn't tons of people, but it was people. And I thought, okay, this is kind of working. And so we decided to build a mobile app and the mobile app we launched August 2nd of last year, 2022, so just a few months ago. And by November 30th, we got an email from Google that said, hey, we picked you. You're one of the best apps of the year. Don't say anything. We're announcing it in a week. And wow. we got the email and I had this moment of like, is this real? Are we like, is someone punching us? <laughs> like we didn't apply for it. Like what is happening right now? And then they announced it and there were only seven winners. We were one of seven. And on the list was Be Real. Be Real has 10 million downloads. So it was like, Be Real, 10 million downloads. 
breath work, a million downloads, where I was like, we're in good company. And then it said Sigma, 100 plus downloads. And because we were so new, but yeah. I think the beautiful thing about it is that um, when people need something badly enough, they're they're sort of willing to put up with like, oh, it isn't as smooth as some of the other apps I use, or I yeah. wish it had this feature. Um, but the way that the app works is um, you download it. You We ask you a few questions. Um, we have optional questions for you to answer about your lived experience and that of the people you care about. Um, over 90% of people answer those questions. And the reason we ask, and we're very clear about this, is we want to be able to match you. So when someone who is a child sexual abuse survivor is struggling and says, I want, I want support, I want messages of kindness, but only from other people who have been through this, we have that ability to only serve your ask for hope to people who have that as a lived experience. Um, but the idea behind it is that it's a place to see stories, to watch stories of people who are navigating different things, to get living proof that you're not alone. You can filter by um, conditions. So it could be bipolar, but it could also be miscarriage. You can filter by life experiences and also diagnoses. Um, and then you have the option if and when you're ready to ask for support. So if you're having a hard day, you can say, here's what's going on. And we get a range of kind of everything you could imagine. And then people say either, I only want it to go to this group of people who share my experience, or I'll take a message of hope from anyone. And then we share that with the community. Once we've made sure that it's not offensive or hateful or anything like that, we moderate every message that comes to the platform so that no one can ever get trolled. We want it to be the safest place online someone can go to talk about their mental health. Um, and then the ask for hope and the offers for hope can be one of three formats. It can be text, which is totally anonymous. It can be audio clips, or it can be video clips. And I think one of the nice things is imagine a scenario going back to like, you know, this first example of a CSA survivor where you've yeah. never really spoken the word that this is an experience you have and you go ask for hope and you do it in text and you're totally anonymous and then you get video messages back. And this has happened on the platform. It's that moment where maybe that person who did the ask thing, if that person can be so okay with it and so yeah. free of shame because there shouldn't be any, but of course there is, but it's not your fault, but it's, you know, it's very complex that they're putting their face out there on a video to a stranger, maybe one day that could be me. And so we say that, um, you know, our, our tagline is crowdsourcing hope. I filed a trademark for that as soon as I thought of it, because I thought this is great. And if no one has this, I want it. Um, and that's what we mean by it, that some days you have hope to give and other days you are struggling and we can be that place for people either way. Um, we do also hope that people will make offering hope to a stranger in need part of their daily mental health practice. So I often, when I'm feeling low, just go find someone and think like, who can I go give some love to? And it's also really beautiful to see a lot of times we get new members that sign up. Yes. They do an ask for hope because they're struggling and then they immediately offer hope to someone. And it's just this beautiful thing of, I know you're hurting because you just yeah. didn't ask for hope. And the thing that you did with your energy after that was go offer kindness to someone else. It's just, it's a really, really beautiful thing to see. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, let's listen, let's listen and, um, that app is amazing. Um, I used it, asked for hope like two times so far, and I have got, you know, people respond back to me. And I also gave hope to some people. I love the app. Um, shout out to Nick Thompson from Love is Blind um, season. Oh, I think that's the wrong name. Not Love is Blind, I'm sorry. <laughs> Very different sight. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, Shout out to him because he talked about that. I was in a dark place and I was saying I feel alone. I feel like nobody understands me. 
he said, hey, I need to check out this app. At first, when he told me, I didn't listen. I was like, I'm not checking out no app. These apps are not good. They don't help. But the app is actually good. You know, you never know what someone else is going through. And they could be going through the same thing that you're going through. And stigma provides hope and support. And I thank you for making the app. It's a dope app. Like, I love it. Um, <laughs> it's on my phone. <laughs> Use it. Um, my next question for you, um, before we get to this question, I want to say anybody out there that's struggling with any deep, dark depression or any thoughts of suicide or suicide ideation, there is a prevention, crisis prevention lifeline out there. You could dial 988. The new number is 988. If you or anyone you know that's struggling, please reach out, reach out. So I want to ask you, have you ever dealt with any thoughts of suicide? Um, I'll answer first, but have you ever dealt with any thoughts of suicide if you haven't? Have you lost someone to suicide? So I'll answer first. Um, I was sexually abused as a child by two of my male cousins. And I didn't, I'm 32 right now. And I didn't start dealing with it until I got like 26. I have like issues with men. And, you know, I lost my mom in 2019. They lost my sister nine months later in 2020. Um, I've been suicidal so many times. Like probably recently, like a couple weeks ago, Right, yesterday you just never it's just up and down for me sometimes but you know um some thoughts so i feel like when people have them thoughts it's not like they want to kill themselves and guys i want to say the right term is die by suicide not commit suicide we want to make sure we use the right term everybody's listening is not commit is die by suicide but you know i always you know i lost friends also too and it hurt you know sometimes what keeps me from you know Wanting to end my life, I think about like how I was hurt and how I would hurt others and stuff like that. You know, um, but yeah, I want to ask you, have you ever dealt any thoughts of suicide? Well, thank you for going first and um, for, for sharing what you did. And I'm sorry you've been through what you have, but you're obviously really strong and putting your energy towards helping other people and volunteering with NAMI and all of that. It's fantastic. So um, I think you're on. Um, I, yes, but I think that. When I experienced thoughts related to suicide was after I had done a documentary about suicide. And so I know that everyone, the cliche knowledge is power, but it really is. So um, we have a documentary you can find on YouTube. It's called Stigma Stay. Um, and it's about a young man who dealt with um, suicidal ideation that started at the age of six. And he was adopted and his parents were trying to understand how it could start so early. But it's a really informative piece on sort of, this isn't a product of people getting too sad. It's not a selfish yeah. thing. You know, there's, there's so much that, of the stigma that we sort of break down in that story. But in yeah. prepping to film that, I worked with the executive director at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention and got um, literature that they have, had multiple conversations because what I knew was that I am not a licensed mental health professional. And what I knew was that this story might be important to be told, but there are ways to do it wrong. Um, there are ways to handle question, like doing the interview itself, not even just the final product in the wrong way. Um, and one of the things I learned in talking with the family that is the subject of that film and, and prepping for it was um, about the, um, I think it's called Columbia Lighthouse Project, but there's a suicide assessment tool that they created and there are multiple that you can find. But a lot of what it has to do with is 
um, sort of breaking down the stages of suicidal ideation in terms of having a thought of it'd be easier to just not be here at all, which is not, I'm going to do something to myself. It's sort of different and a precursor. Um, then there are the, okay, I, I want to do something. And then it sort of elevates into if you have made plans for things. Um, if you had, if you thought about plans, if you've carried out any steps towards achieving that plan. And there, there are tiers where when you get to that point, it's like immediately go to get professional help. Um, and so these parents use that suicide risk assessment with their son and the school was actually administering it to the young man as well so that it was you know multiple people and I knew about that from doing the work um, I recently have gone through a number of really hard life things starting a business is really hard um, I have a son with developmental differences he has autism and there were things related to you know nurturing his development and sort of accepting some of the challenges um, I recently got divorced so going through the the pain of that of you know loving a person and having this end to a thing um, there were just a number of things that I was hit, facing all at once and this was all in the wake of my best friend passing away so it was just in a pandemic a global pandemic that that was part of it too um but i remember having moments where i was so exhausted just so tired and this feeling of i need to be all of these things for other people i'm a people pleaser to a fall i talked about it in therapy today i'm working on it um but i i had thoughts of it would just be easier to not wake up um those kinds of thoughts and that i know that's where it starts um and what i did in that situation was i was seeing a therapist at the time and i told my therapist hey i'm having these thoughts and then you know that is sort of the i think the key is when you have any kind of thoughts to have a safe person to share it with and it doesn't always have to be someone who's a mental health professional i think like i was saying if it's at a certain tier of risk then it needs to be um yeah. but not everyone knows that but one of the interesting things that come from building stigma was, um, you know, that's one of the first questions I get. What do you do if someone tells you that they're suicidal in, in your app? Um, you know, the risk associated with that. And so we have the way that stigma is built is that every single time you do an ask for hope, you tap that button that says, I want to ask for hope. The first question is a security question that says, is this a medical or mental health emergency? If you say yes, you don't get to record, you don't get to ask for help, you go straight to a crisis uh, crisis resources uh, section of the app. And so when you put that out there before, 988 is fantastic. There are so many fantastic resources. If you don't remember where to go look in Stigma's app, there's a resources button. Crisis yeah. resources are broken down by like Trevor Project and um, hope for the, the, every kind of sort of um, breakdown of by country and also if you are suicidal, if it's a crisis because it's a domestic violence situation, it's different than a suicidal situation, then, you know, there's a lot to it. And I'm probably not articulating it as well as I should, but the idea being it's more than just one phone number because I know that people like to connect in different ways. Um, but uh, we send people there and then we immediately follow up. And so we personally reach out and say, hey, we partnered with a totally free um, Care, care coordination tool, because one of the top reasons people don't seek help for their mental health, outside of a lot of other ones, um, is not knowing where to start, not knowing who to ask. Um, yeah. And so we wanted to create a space in our app where people knew this is the place I can start. These are vetted resources. Um, but so if someone says yes, they go to that screen where they have the crisis resources. We also human personally reach out and yeah. say we can connect you with this care coordination partner. We've had um, in the last couple of months, we've had four suicidal um, ideation asks, and I'll get to how that happened in a second. Half of them said yes to care coordination. And that to me is, is the beautiful part about what we're doing because I don't know and I can't speculate. But I don't know if those people had 
people in their lives. And there, there have been occasions where someone says, I haven't told anyone in my life about this because I'm worried they'd be afraid. Yeah. And we're able to reach out and say, we have a resource for you. And when they accept, it's like, I want to cry every time it happens because it, it just feels like um, just something we're doing that is helping people who are in a, a depth of a low. Um, but what I'll also say is that most people, they know, and then ask for hope and say that they're feeling suicidal. And why I think that's important is that we have an advisory team um, that we work with that has um, MDs and PsyDs and licensed clinical social workers and suicide prevention specialists um, in different countries um, to be like thoughtful of how inclusive can we be, where when we get an ask like that, we share it and say, is this okay? Is this okay for us to post to the, the sort of public conversation within the app? And the first time one happened, and it was specifically that one where the person said, I can't talk to anyone in my family about this happened. They said, this is exactly what stigma is for. On the risk assessment, they're not in the red, they're in the, at the very earliest stage. People need a place to be able to talk about this stuff. And so what I don't wanna say is that we're endorsing people to come here with those thoughts and not go get professional help. I think no matter um, what stage of it you're in, talking to someone is helpful. Talking to an expert who has the tools to know how to handle it is the best if you can. Um, but I only mean that to say that we're not going to be able to make an impact on the growing suicide rate in the world if we're not willing to talk about it. And it doesn't mean that you don't have to put guardrails in place and be really safe about the way that you do it and have structure so that you can support someone who might be feeling that way. But it's, it's one of the things that scares me because suicide is a scary topic. I'm scared to talk about it. I'm scared to interview about it. I'm scared to speak publicly about it. But I do it because if, if we're too scared to to do work that needs to get done, it won't get done. And because I've worked with specialists and advisors and I, I feel like I, it's my duty maybe to talk about it more. And so I think that that's the thing that like I would want people to know is that to your point, you are not alone if you're feeling this. Like you and I yeah. are on this call and we're both saying, yep, been there in different versions. Um, and I think it's just a matter of arming yourself with the tools like a risk assessment to do yourself if you're not ready to talk to someone and go, this is telling me that I need to go talk to someone and then making sure you find, you know, licensed professionals who can help you when that feeling yeah. comes. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Again, anybody out there that's struggling, there are resources out there. Um, Suicide Prevention Lifeline 988, um, Google is your best friend. NAMI has different chapters all across the USA. I facilitate um, support groups, you know, support groups not, attend, uh, not attended replace therapy, um, which is, is our support groups is just a group just coming together, just talk about mental health issues. You know, I facilitate different type of groups with NAMI Books PA. Um, just reach out for help if you are struggling or anyone is struggling. So my next question just came into my mind. I want to speak on this, you know, touch more on this. Um, you said that um, you have, a, you said son, right? That's autistic, right? People don't usually tie autism to mental health, right? Um, as a mom, as a single mom now, you know, how is that for you? But keeps, you know, you can, we'll just like talk about it. Cause I know, I know a lot of people that have kids that are, um, that um, have autism and a lot of people don't speak about it. Like, I feel like it's not, it's talked about, but it's not talked about enough. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. So I um, can take you on a bit of a journey. I um, had a super healthy pregnancy and ate healthy and did the right things and all of this stuff and um, healthy birth and all of that. So there were, there were no, the second you get pregnant, I can speak from my personal experience. The second you get pregnant, you start worrying. And what you don't know is that you're not pregnant. 
you start in the beginning, it's like, will the pregnancy stay? Will I have a miscarriage or no? Then no. You do an anatomy scan. Everything looks good. Okay, it's going to be good. Will I have a healthy birth? Will I be hurt? Will my child be hurt? And yeah. let's be very clear and talk about what needs to be talked about. If you are a Black woman in the United States, the wealthiest Black women in the United States have a higher chance of dying in childbirth than the most impoverished white women. And that is not okay and a travesty and a huge problem. So I just want to say that in case people aren't talking about it enough or it's something people haven't heard. I don't have a solution for it, but it's it's not okay. Um, so you fear the birth, you feel fear all of the things. Um, but for, in my case, so much had gone well that I sort of thought, okay, like, yeah. like pretty good. Um, I will say that my situation and my emotional response to everything happening in his diagnosis was also coupled with my best friend, my friendship soulmate um, died. And six weeks later, my only child was diagnosed with autism. So I was already mourning in a very powerful way, experiencing for the first time um, symptoms of major depression, um, like major depressive disorder that was situational in my case. But still feeling it. And it felt like I couldn't get out of bed. I didn't know how I was going to get out of bed and go do my job and do all of these things. And then I got this news that felt like, and everyone is different, but for me, what it felt like is I don't know how I'm going to do this again. Uh, uh, like, I don't know how to get out of bed. Now I have to get out of bed and be an autism mom. And I have to, like, our insurance um, the school where he was going didn't take our insurance. So we got this diagnosis and they said he needs therapy, all these therapies. a month therapy. Oh, we don't take your insurance. And I called insurance and they were like, we don't have, we have two schools in the city of Chicago. And I said, I find it hard to believe that there are two schools that you cover in the entire city of Chicago. And I wasn't in a small town where you only have one option. So every parent I think is focused on, um, you know, creating the best life they can for their child and setting their children up for success. And you now have this layer added into it of, um, there are challenges, there are known challenges and then unknown challenges. Everything is more difficult. Everything is more expensive. Um, everything is urgent. If you don't act now, the like most important years of brain development are between zero and five. So you better get on it and get all the stuff in. So there's all this yeah. pressure from outside forces. Um, and then there's a ton of stigma. And there yeah. are problems with representation where the only, again, to the point of the stories we consume, everyone thinks Rain Man. Not as much yeah. anymore because it's a really old movie, but like that's what people think of when they think yeah. of autism, if they don't have exposure. Um, they think of white men. That's what happens. My son, so I'm half Costa Rican, half American, born in Costa Rica, grew up here. My son yeah. actually looks Latino, which I love. <laughs> He's so cute. Um, <laughs> I would say mostly white presenting. And this is another race issue that I want to bring up. Yeah. It's different if you have a black son in the United States, end of sentence. Yeah. But if you have a black son who is autistic and you look at what's happening in the world with crime and um, uh, crimes against black people and perpetrated by police officers. And to be clear, I don't hate police officers. My brother-in-law is a police officer and I love him dearly. But when in moments of fear, we don't have the broad enough perspective to understand that the way human beings operate in this world is different, the way that human process things in this world is different, it's terrifying. And I feel for, I have um, Black female friends with Black autistic sons, and we've talked about this before, that it's it's different and it's unfair that it's different, just like childbirth, it's unfair that it's different for them. But what I will say is outside of fears of like police activity or that sort of thing, there's the fear of, will he have friends? Will he get invited to slumber parties or, you know, a school dance or ever get married or be able to tie his shoes or go to the bathroom by himself? All of these things that, <clears throat> 
when you don't have something on your path that it diverges from what is normal and normal isn't a thing, but I'll just use the air quotes to show that I don't believe in normal. Um, I think that you suddenly now have to worry about if something will happen versus when, um, because there are every range of experiences with autism, just like there is every range of experience with people who don't have autism. Like every Latin woman isn't the same. Every black male isn't the same. Every autistic girl isn't the same. And so one of the most helpful things I learned with autism <clears throat> was that people think of autism because they've heard of the spectrum and they think of a line of a linear spectrum. And it's like, how severe is your child? I get that question a lot. Like how severe is his? And what it really is, is not that like three is the worst and you're a three, although there is a scale and a test that you do and you find out what they are. My son was a two and a half. And they yeah. said, well, we actually score them higher and worse so that you get more therapy. So the whole system is broken. It's like, let's not be accurate. Let's just like, or it so that insurance covers things. That's another thing for another day. But they said to think of it more as a network of nodes, almost like a three-dimensional sphere of nodes. And every node is some skill set, something that is what it is to be human. And in certain areas, like reading, he started reading when he was 20 months old. We were in the car oh, wow. before he looked out the window and he said, Mama felt beautiful. And I was like, what made him think you're beautiful? And I looked in, you know, in Chicago, we have these parks that have, you are beautiful on the fences. Aww. He read the, beautiful is not an easy word. Like that is a hard <laughs> That's long. Off the charts, he does math, like truly like division, multiplication, addition, subtraction. He's four. He yeah. knows all the country's flags. He knows all the planets in the solar system. But he has trouble following a two-step instruction to like go in his room and grab a this. And so I think what I care that people know about autism is, they, this is a thing in, in the autism community, but um, if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. It's like saying, if you've met a woman, you've met one woman. You would never say like, well, she's a woman and we know what women are. Um, yeah. I think people need to start thinking of autism in that same way. Having said that, it is tied to comorbidities of things like anxiety and depression. Yeah. Um, there is a much higher chance that you will navigate um, those, those experiences if you are um, diagnosed with autism. And so I think that matters, but also even just saying autism. So there's something called person first language. So my son has autism. Some people are very offended by that because what you should say is my son is autistic. Um, for me personally, I choose to alternate between the two because it's his yeah. and he's four. So he can't decide yet. He hasn't told yeah. me what he likes. And I want to <laughs> model for him that I'm using both options so that he feels yes. like either are accessible to him. Um, a lot of autistic adults will tell you that they much prefer, like autism is, is part of who they are. They are autistic, yeah. not have like a cold or a pet. Um, and some people say something different. So I think like everything else in the world, and that's why with stigma, with the stories we capture, we have a lot of stories about bipolar and bipolar one and two, like that's yeah. crazy because everyone's expressed like the, the way that mental illness or neurodivergence or like all of these things express themselves in us, it's different depending on who we are. It's the same reason that like COVID for some people is it, it kills them. And for some people they are asymptomatic. Like every human being is different. And if we don't apply that also to our neurobiology and the way that you know we we navigate mental illness and these conditions yeah. that people don't understand, um, it it would just be a better world if we could all go to a person and say, like, okay, I've heard this label, but I'm not going to make any assumptions based on the label and resist the temptation that we have as humans to bucket people and categorize them and say like yeah. tell me about you I just want to learn about you I think that's the way to handle it but I think that um we shouldn't make assumptions with autism that um people who are 40 percent of autistic people are nonverbal. 
yeah. just because someone can't speak does not mean that they're not incredibly intelligent, incredibly compassionate, empathetic, whatever, you know, they love and feel good about and strong in. But I think it's people having the patience to take time to try and understand and to listen. Yeah. You can see I talk a lot. And with my son, the therapist had to train me. They're like, you are asking the same question three times. He needs more time to process the question you have asked. Shut up. They were nicer. They didn't say shut up. <laughs> <laughs> do that and now it's amazing because i'll think oh he just doesn't respond and then if i wait sometimes 10 seconds he yes. answers the question and it's just about me retraining myself yeah to be a more listener and communicate yeah i want to say um thank you for touching on that i wanted to you know say that i think you you know what you're going you know you know with the autism your divorce you know you you were stigma I think you are um, so dope and, you know, so smart and, you know, you got the best mental, your son has the best mental health champion in his corner, you know, you know, you're doing your thing right now. And um, my next question for you, I want to ask you, what are some coping skills you could recommend to somebody? And I want to say before she says some coping skills, remember, um, ladies and gentlemen, that coping skills work different for everybody. Not everything works for everybody. You know, but I just want to get her coping skills that she could recommend. Oh, I love the the qualifier too, because it's so true. Um yeah. and it can change over time. So um an unhealthy one that I used a lot for my anxiety was alcohol. Um, because it was just, you know, it would calm me and it, it did. It, the first one definitely did. Um, I am not a person who is sober, but I am a person who has stopped drinking um like a huge volume compared to what it was during the pandemic. I, like a lot of people just was sort of having a drink after work every night and it became habitual and it was never binge drinking and came to a point of issue, but it definitely felt like I was doing it almost involuntarily at a certain point. And so when I had these sort of changes in life and moving into my own place river and kind of making these changes, I knew if I didn't, I knew I had so much on my plate. I was doing tech stars. I was like finishing fundraising. We were launching the app. It was, you know, all of the things um, I knew if I didn't take care of myself that that it might be easier to not wake up feeling was going to get worse. My anxiety was going to be a nightmare. Um, and so one of my tools is drinking less. If I have something important, yeah. I like a presentation or a pitch on a stage and I often have panic attacks on stages. It's a really fun time, um, but I've learned how to navigate it. And it's by talking about it. If I do a post on LinkedIn about having a panic attack in a presentation, it gets 5x the number of impressions as other posts because people just want other people to be honest about what's going on. Um, for me, it's a uh, consumption of alcohol and caffeine. So I actually did a cleanse like in December and I haven't um, been drinking coffee. I drink like a mushroom tea instead yeah. in the morning. If I'm exhausted, like three times since December, I've had some coffee. And what yeah. I noticed it instantly makes my heart race more. And so it's sort of these things that like I did, um, <clears throat> I have a, a bike at home, a Peloton, and um, I got it in 2018, um, right after my son was born. I was like, okay, I sold a, a domain name I had, and it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can have a It was a random domain I bought, <laughs> paid off, pretty cool. Um, but I had, I was listening to this instructor the other day who said, um, motivation, I'm gonna butcher it, but like motivation is a joke. It's not about motivation. If you wait to be motivated to work out every day, you're not gonna do it. Um, you wait to be motivated to not have drinks every day or to not drink too much caffeine or not get whatever the, the you know behavior that isn't as helpful to your mental health is, it won't happen. It's about discipline. It's about creating a habit. And then motivation comes after that, after you've shown the discipline of just showing up and doing that thing. So for me, the things that help my mental health to show up and do that thing are, I have an enormous water bottle that I- <laughs> Yeah, it's water, H2O. <laughs> um, tons of water. 
Um, like I said, I don't not drink, but I don't drink as often and I don't not have caffeine ever, but I don't have it as often. Um, yeah. And then working out, working out is they have done so many studies that show not only is it good for like neurodevelopment, prevention of Alzheimer's, dementia, all of those things, um, but that it can decrease dramatically um, depression and, and symptoms of anxiety. And so I work out almost every day. I've been kind of sick and I couldn't work out for three days and I felt it in my mental health. I was in a negative place. I kept going into that dark place. And I thought, even if it's a 20 minute ride and I'm coughing, I'm going to do it because I, I need it. Um, and then I really focused on um, the food that I put into my body. And so it's not perfect all the time. Um, I had like lovely, amazing buffet of fried Chinese food with my sister on Saturday. It was awesome. Um, but I have a vegan protein shake every day to make sure I get enough protein. I make soup a lot that has like a lot of different like vegetables and whatever I try and eat whole foods for the most part and then treat with like the other stuff and I think people hear that stuff and they're like yeah I should do that but it's kind of wild when you do it like I did it out of necessity because I was like I'm not going to make it through this season of life if I don't actively do a couple things and it was drink less alcohol drink less caffeine um get exercise in and eat healthier foods those are kind of like the four and then I go to therapy, which is very helpful, but I wasn't doing therapy for about three months. Um, at the time that I probably needed it most and was feeling worse. Um, I don't think everyone needs therapy. I think it's, I always give the analogy of like the gym. Some people are very cool to just go to the gym by themselves every day, don't need help. And some people need a personal trainer to show them tips and teach them. And that's how they have, you know, that's how they do the work to take, take care of their physical body. Um, so I was in a phase where I was reading a lot about mental health, um, but didn't feel like I needed, uh, or had time for, would, was ready to make time for therapy. I maybe didn't want to deal with some of the feelings, um, but I found these other kind of healthy things. So mine's a mix, but it changes depending on season. Yes, the gym is definitely a must, guys. Um, it, it does help with yourself. It does. I, <laughs> there's been times I was going probably like four times a week, and I was not depressed for like a long time. I think when I stopped going, that's when it you know, went downhill. And um, my last question for you, I want to know, let's get into what's, what do you got going on next? We know you got stigma, but what's next? Like, what's going oh, I mean, what's next for stigma? What's next for me or both? Both. Okay, well, what's next for me since I just came from therapy is um, working on being less of a people pleaser. It feels really good to be liked. It feels really good to have people tell you, gold star for you because you made me feel good. Um, and I think I, I have struggled to define my own identity. Um, I mean, I built an entire company out of helping people and I'm really proud of it and I love it and I won't stop it. But, um, I know that personally I have work to do to understand truly what it is that makes me happy. Like helping yeah. people can be on the list. It can't be a list of one bullet point. Like that can't be it. Um, and river's number one. So let's say two things. Um, but that's my son. Sorry. So, um, but I think for me next is doing that work. I'm, I'm listening to a book on Audible right now called The Untethered Soul. Yeah. I'm really liking it. It's a lot about um, kind of like bad things are going to happen. Good things are going to happen. But like controlling your reactions to things and letting things flow through you, like acknowledging yeah. I am having a reaction to this thing and not trying to deny it, but also not letting it um, influence the actions you take and, and the course of your life. Um, so I think that's what's next for me personally is, is work on that, that self work. That, that matters. Um, yes. And what's next for stigma is I hope millions of people find out about it and say, I need this in my life. Um, because yes. the, the goal for stigma is this the vision 
is to be the most trusted mental health destination in the world. And what I often say is so that if you are a manager at work and your teammate comes to you and tells you that she had a miscarriage and needs some time off and you've never been through it, you don't know what to say, you won't go to Google, you'll go to stigma because you'll be able mm -hmm. to see what that experience is like through the voices of people, the birthing parents who've been through it, the non-birthing partners who navigated the sense of loss and grief, but also, you know, supporting the medical needs of their partner, that kind of thing. If your teenager comes to you and tells you they're non-binary and you have no idea how to understand yeah. it and you want to better understand from a place of compassion, you'll think of stigma. The idea is to create a more compassionate world, to yes, to crowdsource hope, but to help people feel safe, um, to give them practice talking about things. But ultimately it's to get people on the path to healing sooner. Because what we know is that the average time between the first time you experience a symptom of mental illness, so me was in my bed, six years old, mom, I'm scared, don't cry. Wouldn't have called it that, but that's what it was. That's when it began. <laughs> um, the tummy aches I got in middle school constantly where I'd have to like leave a bat mitzvah because my stomach hurt, like anxiety. Yeah. Um, but the average time between first experiencing a symptom of mental illness and first seeking treatment is 11 years. In my case, it was 20 something. So the average is 11 years. And if we can create <clears throat> on ramps for people to, number one, to introduce them to resources they didn't yeah. know existed, but then also give them an easy on-ramp where it's, you don't have to tell your parent, you don't have to ask HR, you don't have to be yeah. ready to talk about it, but you can just get more information. That's the goal. So my hope for Stigma is that we achieve the vision, that we become this destination, that millions of people use it, and that because millions of people are there saying, I need some help with my mental health, that the providers of services who are paying Facebook or paying Google to get in front yeah. of those people and not doing a great job of it. It's like when you see it like a, pharma commercial and it's like a commercial yeah. provider and I'm like you wasted your money on me sir like I'm it's Hulu like you know <laughs> that I like my gender and this is not going to be what I want um but if we could create a place where people can go to know they're not going to be sold but that yeah. they be able to find what they might be looking for we can eliminate not only the barrier of entry to the mental health care which is the stigma associated with it and what will people think um but also the i don't know where to go or where to start which is the number two reason that people don't seek treatment if we can eliminate those two things it will be a meaningful change and yeah. people can support yes 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 thank you for coming on thank you for saying yes thank you for you know, talking about mental health. I love to have conversations, you know, surrounding mental health or talking about it, you know, break your fight your stigma. You know, um, I just like thank you again. Um, and I really, really appreciate you. Everybody, make sure you um download stigma the app, you know, make sure you guys download it. You will not be sorry. It is a, like I said, it's a great app. Not just because I have Miss Ariana, Ariana here, it's just that I have the app on my phone. And I don't have many apps on my phone that <laughs> <laughs> I have it on my phone, and um, like I said before, I have got hope and gave hope, and it's so dope. I think it's dope when you don't know nobody. Somebody doesn't know you, and they're, wherever they're in the world, you know, wherever you at, you know, UK, you know, London, wherever you at, across the, on the whole world, somebody can give you hope and everything. I understand what you're going through, and know that you are truly not alone. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me.